Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and ladies and gentlemen, we got him. We got him back. The return of the wolf, new father, no sleep. Joe, what's going on? What's going on? Once again, joined by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What's going on with me? What's going on with you, sir? How is life as a new father? The Pound the Rock community wants to know. It's pretty wild, man. I mean, I'm I'm sure we got some contingent of listeners that have kids, so I won't be blowing any minds, but uh, it's definitely an adjustment. And it's, you know, kind of like what you'd expect, right? It's it's hard. It's time-consuming. It's sleep-depriving, but it's also super rewarding. And, I mean, I'm still, like, very much in the early stages. She just turned three weeks a couple of days ago, and it still feels... Like parts of it definitely still feel super surreal. And I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, you just, you get like very wrapped up, I think, in the routine of taking care of a baby. And it's like becomes, I don't know. It just becomes, I guess, sort of mechanical in a way. Like she sleeps, she wakes up, you feed her, you change her, you burp her, you bathe her, soothe her. She sleeps some more. Like there are like really wonderful moments sort of sprinkled in there but it does just become kind of routinized in a way that you almost makes you like forget sometimes that she is like your daughter that is going to ultimately grow into this like fully formed human with a personality and like her own opinions and I so like sometimes I remind myself of that and that still very much blows my mind when I think about it um and just like seeing her change like they changed so so fast i guess early on and i don't know it's just like a crazy experience that i obviously can't you know relate or uh compare to anything that i've experienced before it's it's pretty wild i can only imagine and yeah d- definitely don't expect you to compare it to any uh any basketball related thing or uh work related things but i can definitely say i and we are all happy to have you back and uh, yeah, it should be fun talking ball with you again um, as as the new man that you are. And when I say that, I mean you are not new at all. You're the exact same person. You just brought uh, you just brought new life into the world. So props to you on that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's quite a time to be jumping back into the fray here. I feel <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean I've been doing my best, obviously, to to kind of stay on top of stuff and not fall too far behind. But obviously, it's been you know, a bit difficult to pay as close attention as I typically do. But um, it's been, you know, from everything that I have seen, and I have kind of made more of an attempt in the last few games to like pay extra close attention to the games because I knew I was going to be jumping back in. Uh, It's been like a really fun finals, no? It's been incredible, man. Like in, In terms of just like quality of play, but also competitive basketball, and the amount of time in the series, it's been very competitive. It's been one of the best finals I can remember. And what I know you weren't watching maybe as intently as you normally would, but you mentioned the last few games, watching a little closer, and I'm sure you've you know seen some stuff in the first few games. So from your perspective, what are you coming out of these first five games feeling? Um, I, no, I definitely think the games themselves have been super entertaining. I think basically every game has had like a transcendent individual performance, at least one, you know, sometimes more than one. I think, uh, you know, the shot making, especially in that game five, I mean, like for both teams, the shot making was just out of this world. 
obviously the start of the series, I feel like Chris Paul was the story and the Bucks seemed to just have no answer for him. And then suddenly they kind of found one. Uh, and I know they, you know, maybe started out, they started out with PJ Tucker guarding him and switched to Drew Holiday, which maybe made more intuitive sense to begin with. And that's, uh, I think provided a lot more clarity to their defense, but um, then for Phoenix, you know, it, it kind of became Devin Booker's series and he's had a couple mammoth individual performances the last couple of games. And then I think, I mean, there have been lots of little storylines, I feel like, in this series. The big one, you know, the biggest one to me is just Giannis and how incredible he's been at both ends of the floor and especially doing it, you know, coming off of that hyperextended knee when it seemed like at a certain point, maybe he wasn't even going to play in the finals. And now he's having, you know, one of the more incredible two-way finals performances in my recent memory anyway. Uh, yeah, I think I think Giannis's limbs might be more malleable than a newborn child based on the way <laughs> he has recovered from that disgustingly disturbing landing. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's just amazing like what what he is doing and how how many different ways I feel like he's impacting the game like whether it be as a ball handler as a screener uh, as an on-ball defender or as a help defender like all like everything that Giannis does well you know I guess you know the 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 things that he doesn't do well have continued to plague him the free throw shooting um the jump shooting in general which I think to his credit he is sort of started to phase out a little bit. And part of that is him sort of committing to like the screen and roll game and, and being a dive man. Part of it is like when he has the ball in his hands, he's not settling, but it's like, like everything that he does do well has kind of coalesced and he's done all of those things at like absolute peak Giannis levels, right? Like this is the maximal version of Giannis, I think. And he's, done it for you know four games in a row now basically in the finals and so you know among all the storylines that we can talk about you know what be they individual player oriented storylines or tactical storylines you know I feel like the one that looms above all of them is is the way that this sort of feels like a, a coronation for Giannis which has been a long time coming uh, he just hadn't put it all together on this stage before um, I think we both kind of knew that he had that in him, that this was something that he was capable of, you know, having seen him do it in earlier stages of the playoffs and obviously in the regular season. And to see him now doing it on the biggest stage, uh, I think has been really exhilarating. And, and especially obviously coming off of that injury, just uh, one of the more impressive finals performances that I can remember. Giannis Antetokounmpo is averaging 32.2 points, 13 rebounds, 5.6 assists, 1.4 steals, and 1.2 blocks on 61% shooting through five finals games. Uh, he's gotten to the line, what is it, 66 times through five games. He's averaging more than 13 free throw attempts per game. And look, 59% obviously is nothing to write home about, but for Giannis and for the Bucks. Him knocking down about 60% of his free throws when he's getting to the line 13 times a game is actually a positive. Words cannot describe how insanely good he has been in this series. I wrote late last week that I think he, uh, through four games, I was already saying that I think he should be the finals MVP almost regardless of what happens the rest of the way. I'm more convinced of that than ever after game five. I think it would take 
an absolutely like unbelievable performance from one of or both of like Chris Paul and Devin Booker for me to believe one of them is the finals MVP in the event the Suns come back and win. And even then, I think it would still take some sort of Giannis collapse for me to come out of this series thinking he wasn't the best overall player and most valuable overall player in this series. I know the arguments against that. Jerry West is the only guy to ever win finals MVP on the losing team. It happened in 69. Um, LeBron averaged a triple-double in a five-game loss in 2017. Memorably dragged that Kyrie and Kevin Loveless Cavs team to six games with Delavadova against the Warriors in 2015 and never won final. Like, I get that. But I, I just think, like, even for as great as Middleton has been, you know, and for as awesome as Drew has been on the defensive end and with his playmaking, and, you know, he's, he's had a couple good offensive games. But even all of that notwithstanding, like, the drop-off between what Giannis is doing and what anyone else on the court in this series is doing is just so drastic that, to me, whether it actually happens or not, like, I think it would be just legitimately dumb, stupid, ignorant for anyone with a finals MVP vote to vote for anyone else in the series, regard like win or lose for the Bucks. Like I, I, this is one of the most spectacular individual performances we will ever see in a playoff series. And he's doing it in the finals. And as you mentioned, he's doing it in a way where like, it's not just like, okay, he, like he's bricking threes and you know, shooting 38% from the free throw line or something like he's doing it in a way where like he's maximized his game. He's cut a lot of the jumpers out, a lot of the silly offense out. He is being a more willing and awesome screener in, in the Bucks offense. As I imagine, you know, he's knocking down almost 60% of free throws. Like what can you say negative about Giannis in this series? Like the guy has been basically perfect. Yeah. I do think probably precedent is like the one big thing that's right. working against him there. I don't think that that should be a factor. Like, if you think that he's been the most valuable player in the series, win or lose, then you should vote for him regardless of whether LeBron won in 2015 or not. Exactly. I, by the way, think LeBron should have won finals MVP exactly. in 2015. Yes. So uh, I think you apply that same logic here. Uh, I think, like, the door is open to me. Like, if Devin Booker goes out and does basically what he did in games four and five, in games six and seven, and the Suns win, then, like, I'm perfectly fine with Devin Booker winning finals MVP. I think he was going to be hard-pressed to do that. But... Um, I, I'm not saying the door is shut and I got to ask you, man, you, you have, uh, labeled Giannis Antetokounmpo a loyal loser many, many times on this podcast in the course of our three plus years doing this. So here they are on the cusp of winning the Bucks first championship in 50 years, basically. Literally. Yeah. Since half the a days century. of Lou Alcindor. Yeah. What do you have to say for yourself and your <laughs> mischaracterization, well, to be honest? I will say this. Um, even early in this series, like down to nothing, I, I thought the loyal loser thing might actually grow leaps and bounds in this series, not because of anything he was doing wrong on the court, but because of the fact he was playing at this just all-time level, like literally playing some of the best basketball we will ever watch. Like that, that's how good he's been. He's in an all-time conversation right now. And I thought it was just unbelievable that he was doing that even through the first two games. Like he was the best player on the court in the first two games that they lost. And his most consistent teammate through those first two games was Pat Connaughton. And in fact, someone, and I, I do apologize because I'm usually good with um, 
you know, remembering who's, which one of our fans specifically sends us stuff. So I do apologize that this is not a way that we can get a shout out in, but uh, I'm hoping whoever it was that did send me this, and I'm pretty sure I replied to as well, can just resend me something after this episode so we can get them a future shout out. But in fact, someone after the first couple of games did send me a tweet saying that the loyal loser stuff was looking as accurate as ever because of how well Giannis was playing and how much his supporting cast was frankly failing him and letting him down through the first two games. Now, obviously, that has changed in a big way between Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday and the Bucks as a whole. And by the way, I think Bud has been solid in this series. And that's something, yeah. to be honest, I was even saying, and you can go back and look at what I wrote after the Bucks went down 2 nothing. The first point I wrote in that post was that uh, I didn't think the Suns um, offensive explosion in those first two games was about bad bud. I thought it was about uh, picking your poison and sometimes just not being able to control the fact that between Chris Paul and Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and other things, like the Suns are just really hard to stop in the pick and roll. Drew Holiday deserves a lot of credit for his work on Chris Paul since game two in slowing that down. But anyway, to the original point, yes, clearly if the Bucks finish this off with the efforts they've gotten from Middleton and Holiday and, and down the roster... The whole thing of him being a loyal loser, no, if anything, it would be replaced. And I will very gladly admit that not only is he not a loyal loser, but he is admirable in a way that like, not even just admirable, but he has, he would have done something that very few of even the game's greatest players have done. And that is not, not just that he committed to a small market or whatever, but that he committed, he committed to a team that had not really gotten over the postseason hump with people like me and a bunch of even bigger names, like criticizing that. And he did it. And yes, you can say, okay, well, obviously he did it because of the money and the, all the extra money he made by staying in Milwaukee. But like anytime you've ever listened to Giannis speak about his relationship with Milwaukee, about, you know, how much he appreciates the Bucks trusting him and all this stuff, like you can tell that it's not just about the money, right? Like there is some sort of connection there where he genuinely wants to win there. And wants to be able to say he won there. And there are a lot, again, like, you know, LeBron, through no fault of his own, Cleveland obviously failed him in those early years. But go up and down the list. Um, KD in Oklahoma City, like, some of the greatest players we'll ever see who couldn't do it in their first stop, not because of a lack of loyalty, but because at a certain point, they just realized, like, man, I got to get out of here and, and get some better teammates if I want to win this. Giannis didn't do that. You know, he stuck there. And if he can pull this off and win with these guys, you know, no discredit to those guys. They're playing well now, but like he, he flips that loyal loser thing on its head and it becomes like the exact opposite. It's like, no, not only is he not a loyal loser, it's that we have to accept that this guy is so transcendently good that he can go almost anywhere and probably convince himself that, no, it's fine. I'll just win us a chip, you know, like it's it's remarkable man and i know a bunch of people have pointed it out if he wins it this year it would only be one year later into his career than jordan won his first and one year earlier than lebron won his first i believe like again you know let's not count those chickens before they hatch they still do have to close us out but Giannis is on the precipice of being in some conversations here you know that obviously we will wait until later in his career to have but multiple time mvp like if he wins it, champion, um, likely finals MVP by his seventh season, by his mid-20s, like Jesus, man. Defensive player of the year? Yeah. 
Uh, by the way, that defensive play he made on Aiton, that block, is one of the greatest and craziest defensive plays I've ever seen. The fact that it wasn't replayed 30 times in 30 seconds, let alone that it was replayed zero times on the broadcast, <laughs> is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. It would be dumber than not voting Giannis for finals MVP. Just absurdity, man. Absurdity. Uh, every spot on the court he's played this this finals. I, I, I have nothing left to say about it. Yeah, and like everything you just said is sort of why... I defended him when he signed that extension. And it, and it's because I think one of the things I've always really respected about Giannis is that he, w- when things don't go well, when the Bucks flop or flame out of the playoffs, he is taking that responsibility on himself. And like, I'm not, you know, no criticism to any player who has like, demanded a trade gone somewhere else in free agency you know gone to a better team and and like gotten dragged for quote-unquote taking the easy way out or whatever the hell like i that's all fine like players can do should control their own destinies but i've always just appreciated that Giannis, you know like when when those stumbles or those failures happen he's looking at himself and he's saying like i need to be better and he he took it you know, upon himself and made it his own responsibility, I think, to like get Milwaukee over the hump. And like you said, like he wanted to do it with the Bucks. That was clearly very important to him. He, you know, locked himself in for not necessarily the remainder of his prime because he's going to be like, I think, 31 when that contract is up. He'll still have, I think, a few good years left. But, you know, the bulk of his prime, he committed to a team that up until obviously this season had not proven that it could win a championship or like just hadn't won a championship, I guess. Like, I think, I think they've proven that they could, or were at least like going to be in that conversation. But like, I do think not all the players, not not a lot of players would necessarily do that um, because of, uh, of the, the term, like the, the level of commitment that that required and the level of belief, you know, not necessarily just in the organization, but in himself, to carry that organization where he felt like they could go and to see him now doing it. I think like that's, that's validating for, you know, the decision that he made. And obviously like the, the bucks had some breaks go their way. Some stuff had to go right for them to get to where they are now. Obviously, you know, th- that series against Brooklyn and, and the injuries the Nets suffered being at the top of that list, but like they're here, they're on the cusp. And, and so I think that decision uh, and his belief in himself and and his belief in the Bucks has uh, to this point paid off. Yeah, absolutely. I just think he deserves all the credit in the world, man. Um, I do think if uh, if the Bucks close this out and he continues to play anywhere near the level he's playing, I think the second he gets to the podium, actually scratch that. I think the second he receives the Bill Russell Award as Finals MVP, I think he needs to take the mic and say unequivocally. I don't care what I said about Kevin Durant earlier in this playoff run. I am officially now the best player in the world. Crown me LeBron. And and I will my respect for him will grow even more than it already has. Uh, but no, seriously, I think... Um, I, I mean, I think you can make the argument he is the best player in the world the way he's playing right now. And there have been very few, if any, moments in the last, like, I'd say 14 years where you could tell me anyone but LeBron James was the best player in the world. One of those times was the 2019 playoff run when I thought, okay, right now Kawhi Leonard at this level is probably the best in the world. And watching Giannis Antetokounmpo right now 
maybe the only time. I guess Durant at some point in there. But even that, like, yeah, I was gonna say, like, I haven't forgotten what Durant did in that no, second no, round series. <laughs> absolutely not. And, and and yes, so like that. But but that's what I'm saying. Like we're talking about in terms of being able to actually make the argument this guy might be better than LeBron James right now. It's been in the last 14 years for me. Like Kawhi at his absolute best, Durant at his absolute best, and Giannis right now. Yeah, well, so actually, here's a point that I want to make about that. The the margins in playoff basketball can be so, so slim. Mm -hmm. And like, go back to that second round series and go back to that game seven against the Nets when literally like the the edge of Kevin Durant's toe is on top of the three-point line when he lets that shot fly. And so the game goes to overtime instead of it being a Nets win and the Bucs season being over. And now we're talking about Giannis, you know, potentially being the best player in the world and this mm-hmm. being a coronation for him and him potentially ending this massive Bucks championship drought and everything that would mean. Let's remember that when we're having these kind of conversations about, you know, a player like Joel Embiid or a player like Chris Paul, if the Suns lose this series or, you know, any number of excellent players who have proven themselves to be capable of being the best player on a championship team, but just haven't been that player due to circumstance, bad luck, like any number of other things that can affect an outcome in a team sport. Like, let's just remember that and not just solely base our opinions or our valuations or our legacy talk on outcomes because so much can go into that. And the Bucks season could have been done. And like, I think we both know like what people would be saying about the Bucks and about Giannis if that had happened. And surely Mike Budenholzer would be out of a job right now. And there would be all kinds of questions swirling around this franchise. But instead, Durant would be in the gulag right now if that had happened. Yeah, but like instead, Durant's toe was on the line, and like we're having a completely different conversation. And and it's like these outcomes can swing so wildly on tiny, tiny margins like that. And like I like I always like to do, take it back to 2019, right? Where you know maybe we're we're if you want to talk about Embiid and like he hasn't been past the second round, right? Because. Uh, a Kawhi Leonard shot bounced four times on the rim and went in. And like, we don't know if the Sixers would have won that game in overtime, but like they may have, and we could be having a completely different conversation about that organization and about that player. And then the Bucks in that same postseason, like they're, they're in overtime in game three with a chance to go up three, nothing on the Raptors and certainly had their opportunities to do so. I think they definitely could have beaten that banged up Warriors squad in the finals could have won the championship that year but they didn't and instead for like 2 years endured all this talk about their limitations and how they couldn't get it done for reasons x y and z and you know looking at this now and the fact that like the bucks are on the precipice of winning a championship which again they might not win like the suns could very much still come back and win this series it's just i think it's a good moment to kind of reflect and take into account like all the different factors and the bounces and like how much of a role luck does play in these things and just recognize that it's not all about like oh player x never won a championship or he never could lead a team to a championship uh, and and actually like apply some context and some nuance in the way that we talk about these players and these teams during the playoffs i've said it too many times to remember but the nba is the most championship exclusive league 12 franchises have won a championship over the last four decades, over the last 40 years. Only 12 have won it. Only one out of 30 can win it every year. And yet it is the league in which fans, media, whatever, 
look at it as championships or bust more than any other. You know what I mean? It's like it's the hardest one to actually win one in, and yet it's the one that people throw shade at players more than ever for not winning it. And I get it in the sense that like basketball is also the sport that one player can make a difference, you know, the most, just based on the the way the game is played and the rules and such. But yes, to your point, obviously like nuance and context and a measured approach to analyzing things is very necessary. And yeah, the KD toe on the line thing is a perfect example of that. You know, at any turn, like you should be able to, and you know, that series is a perfect example because as we both stressed as that series unfolded, but in that series was pretty bad. Like the Bucks in general in that series did some very, um, even the way they played, there was a lot of just like, old demons kind of coming back to haunt them in that series, right? And so I think had they lost it against a banged up Nets team, I think it would have been fair to criticize all of those things. But like those things could have been true and it wouldn't have necessarily meant that, it wouldn't have meant that, oh, that this means that they will never win a title as presently constructed or this means they can't do it. You know what I mean? It just would have meant so far they haven't been able to do it and this is why. Which is... Not how it would have been received and how it would have been. 100%. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes. Um, They weren't perfect in that series. Bud wasn't perfect in that series. But like, I I think for the most part, they played well. And Bud actually, like, I think Bud's actually been really good for the entirety of this postseason. He's had a good playoffs. I think he's had a, 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 he's saved his best for last in terms of the finals. I Mm -hmm. think they've been more adaptive and quicker to react than they have been at any time in the Bud era during this final. And I think that's been a big part of why they succeeded after those first two games. And yeah, honestly, and to like to begin with in game two as well, they lost game two, but I thought he was solid in that game in terms of what he did defensively and how it began to change the series there. It's been cool to see because it really is like a confluence of, of all the things that the Bucks have been building towards all season. And like, it's not just about Bud and like his principles becoming a little bit more adaptive and flexible, but it's about, you know, sort of the personnel that the Bucks front office put together that has given him more options and the different ways that the Bucks can play. It's been the players themselves sort of figuring out uh, how to work off of each other. Um, I mean, the players themselves also just like playing really well at opportune times. Pat Connaughton probably being like chief among those players who kind of not out of nowhere because I, I think he's been pretty solid for most of the season but like and this is something we can get into and, and like something that I think has really turned the series but the fact that the Bucks bench has outplayed the Suns bench is you know Sarich's injury has played into that but like that's really not something that I would have expected at all coming into this series is like Pat Connaughton being the best reserve in the finals and, and Bobby Portis like being a significant factor in the finals like that's it's kind of just like something you can't necessarily predict. Like it looks now like a vindication of the front office who we ripped by the way, for that Connaughton contract that they actually screwed up. Um, I don't remember specifically what it was, but like the terms of the deal as it was initially structured were like in violation of the CBA and they wound up having to give him an extra year on that deal. And it messed up their cap sheet. And we were like all this for Pat Connaughton who like in the past, Bud had leaned on too heavily in the playoffs and we've been critical of him for playing Pat Connaughton too much. And here he is making a huge impact in the finals. Like everything has kind of just come together for this organization in a way that like very specifically wipes away these past demons and these past mistakes. And it's like, it's cool to see like a whole kind of organization sloughing off 
these the demons i think i think that have kind of haunted them uh in post seasons past yeah and i think that Connaughton, you know the contract snafu there i think like that's a perfect example of what i was talking about in the sense that like i think it was fair game that they got ripped for that you yeah. know i think it was fair game that they eyebrows were raised at the way the bogdanovich deal fell apart because they cut like it was fair to critique that and them and clown them for that. They're an NBA organization. And conversely, if they close this out and win the title and the fact that the way things have gone for them this playoff run, it is also very fair to them for them as an organization, top to bottom, Horst, Bud, Giannis, Drew, Chris, everyone included, to then turn around and laugh at me or laugh at us or laugh at everyone who was laughing and say, well, it didn't matter because we're better than everyone else and we won it. You know what I mean? Like both things can be true that they did screw up in ways or they did maybe play in ways that weren't optimal or that Bud maybe did things that weren't optimal in playoffs past or even maybe at times this playoff. That can be true and it can still be true that in the end they were still just better than everyone and ended up doing it better than everyone anyway. In terms of like what you were mentioning, even with the KD and the toe on the line, I think a perfect example of the margins between winning and losing being so narrow in the playoffs and and how that changes narratives and things like that is game four of this series. I'm not sure how much of it you saw, but like if you break that game down, you know, analytically from a basketball, like any which way you break that game down, the Suns should have won that game, right? Like um, whether it was the fact that they drastically outperformed their shot quality in that game. The Bucs drastically underperformed their shot quality in that game. Phoenix had a nine-point lead in the fourth quarter in a game where no team had a double-digit lead. Like, that nine-point lead in that game felt almost insurmountable. Like, there are so many reasons where you can look at that game. I think there was a stat, like, that the Suns in game four became the first team in finals history to lose a game in which they shot 50% or better and their opponent shot 42% or worse, something like that. They absolutely should have won that game and should have been up 3-1 coming home with a chance to clinch the franchise's first championship and doing it in Phoenix on a Saturday night. And instead, you know, things don't go their way in game four. Some of that their own doing, you know, a couple of unforced turnovers for Chris Paul, the point guard himself, very uncharacteristic plays from him. And before you know it now, instead of that, scenario I just described, chance to clinch the first championship in franchise history on Saturday night at home. Now you're kind of playing for your life instead, you know, in what's become a best of three. And now you're down three, two, and it's the Bucs who have a chance to clinch at home. And, you know, like that's just a perfect example, right? Of Phoenix did a lot right in that game, obviously, you know, kind of blew it in the end, but should have won that game in so many ways. And they did it. And now everything has changed. And, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, too, like where that game to me felt like I don't know how the Suns recover. You mentioned the bench, right? And how Connaughton's been their best reserve, the best reserve in the series. Now the Bucks shockingly have outplayed the Suns bench. You know, Sarge injury plays big into that. And it's also like, yo, they're, they're now at a point where like if Aiton's not on the court, whether because he's resting or God forbid in foul trouble, Phoenix has gone with one of Crowder, Jay Crowder, uh, Cam Johnson or Torrey Craig at center in super small ball lineups because that's what they have to do. They're not going to play Abdul Nader just to like get, yeah. you know what or I mean? Or Frank like, Kaminsky. Right, exactly. Like, so th- their options are so limited there that the longer this series went, their front court depth was probably going to get exposed. Um, and again, so like you're playing minutes with one of Johnson, Crowder or Craig at center in the finals against a team that starts Burke Lopez and against a team that literally employs the modern incarnation of Shaq when it comes to interior dominance. 
yeah, that's a it's a tough combination of factors. <laughs> yeah. But and, again, um, right? If they if they win Game Four and go up three one coming back to Phoenix, maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah. Now it matters a lot. Um, and to that point, like I think the the Bucks have sort of made it more of a point to establish Lopez on the interior. It feels like to me, which I definitely think is the right approach given the the sort of size advantage that the Bucks are working with and the fact that like I don't think like the Suns are not treating Brooke Lopez as a stretch big. Like when he is standing on the wing, like his defender is early helping at the nail. And when he's standing in the corner, that defender is pulled all the way over to help at the rim. Like they are not concerned about him as a three point shooter. And so I think it's been more effective for the Bucks, even though maybe it compromises their spacing. Like their spacing is compromised anyway because the Suns are helping so aggressively off of him. So using his size and getting him established inside against smaller defenders, like, the, you know, the Suns are playing Aiton on Giannis, right? Which means that Lopez is going to have a significant size advantage no matter who's guarding him. Um, I think that is a better way to go. And I think they've seen the kind of, you know, the fruits of that at the offensive end of the floor because, Sort of like you were mentioning, you know, the Suns aren't losing this series on offense. Like, they've scored pretty well. They've just had a lot of trouble stopping the Bucks, which, again, is not something I necessarily would have expected coming into this series. And, you know, a big part of that is just the fact that the Bucks have shot 38% from three, which I think they were shooting 31% from three in the playoffs coming into this series. Like, they had really, really struggled to shoot the ball. And that makes a big difference. But I also think... Like, kudos to them for the way that they have orchestrated their offense. Like, their pick and rolls have been super effective. Part of that is shot making. Part of it is, like, you know, they're they're doing more stuff, working with an empty corner, getting Giannis rolling to the rim. They have recognized that the Giannis-oriented pick and rolls, whether he's the ball handler or the screener, and they, especially in that game five, I thought, like, ran a bunch of inverted pick and rolls with Giannis as the handler. The Suns aren't switching that. And they're like, I, I understand why it's not even necessarily that they don't want Aiton switching out onto one of the Bucks guards, which I think is survivable. It's more like they don't want to switch anybody else onto Giannis. And so given that the Suns aren't switching those actions, it's like between Middleton and Holiday, who are obviously the guys who are running those pick and rolls, like them making pull-up shots or just sort of probing deep enough to get Aiton to commit and open up that lob to Giannis on the roll, like that has become everything for the Bucks' offense. And in the last few games, obviously Holiday had that like miserable shooting game four. But apart from that, like those two guys have really, really come through. And obviously Drew in game five played the game of his life. And I thought that was pretty good son's drop coverage that they were playing against him with most of the time was Chris Paul guarding him, you know, fighting over the top and getting a late contest and Aiton playing up high enough to like not let him get a super clean look and give CP time to recover. Like they were playing pretty good drop coverage and it just didn't matter because Drew was hitting everything. Um, and that's without even mentioning his defense. And obviously the, you know, the within the game of his life, making basically the play of his life with that dig down on Booker and then the alley-oop that he tossed to Giannis on the break. Um, but I think, you know, there are some things that the Suns can clean up defensively. But to me, like in the last couple of games, it's been more about what the Bucks' offense has done than what the Suns' defense hasn't done. I don't know if you have a, a different take on that, but that's how it's felt to me. No, I agree. Just like I said, I 
I think Drew's defense at the point of attack and I thought it really started changing the series in game two, despite the fact that the Bucks lost that game. I just think like, if you look at like the determination he's played with on that end and just fighting through screens, getting over screens, sticking with Chris Paul, uh, how different it was in game two compared to game one when they were switching a lot more kind of automatically, whether it was Tucker or Drew on him. I just think whether it was, you know, a game plan difference uh, from Budenholzer or maybe just Drew stepping up and saying, no, like I've got this assignment and I can handle it. What I think is really interesting is the way that his defensive performance in this series is a reminder, should be a reminder to people that a lot of times great defense, while yeah, maybe you can see it, like it doesn't always come through. It usually doesn't come through in numbers. And like Chris Paul's numbers in this series are actually a perfect reminder of that in the finals. Chris Paul is surprisingly averaging 21 points and 8.8 assists on 54, 52, 75 shooting, free throw shooting aside, but he's shooting 54% from the field and 52% from deep. Someone had shared too uh, on Twitter that when when Drew Holiday's guarding him on shot attempts in this series, Chris Paul's shooting like over 70%. But again, if you actually watch and like kind of see what's going on, the fact is that Chris Paul, A, isn't getting to his shot as often as he wants to because of Drew Holiday. When he does get to it, it's nowhere near as comfortable as it should be. He's not getting the playmaking opportunities he can get because Drew Holiday's defense at the point of attack is actually disturbing the Suns' offense and causing offensive breakdowns in a way, or maybe making it so that the Suns aren't getting their number one option on that action. You know, maybe they the the the, the possession goes longer or deeper into the clock because of what Drew's doing at the point of attack. And I just think it's been so important. And I agree with what you're saying. Like I think the other side of the core has been the more interesting part of this series but I really do think Drew's work on Chris Paul has just like and not that it's been surprising to me because we've known he's a great defender but like it should really be remembered as one of the storylines of this series especially if the Bucs win it because just the way that it has really changed the game on that end despite what the numbers say it's done uh I think is just remarkable yeah and I think you know you mentioned Chris Paul's playmaking opportunities and how they haven't really been there to the same extent the biggest reason for that to me is just like the the Bucks have been able to play those pick and rolls two on two, you know? Yep. And uh, obviously like Holiday's ball pressure and his ability to fight over those screens has been a huge part of that. Um, and I think, you know, selectively the Bucks have switched those pick and rolls as well. Mm-hmm. And I think Giannis has been pretty damn good on those switches against Chris Paul too. Even Bobby Portis, man, like the, the Bucks, I think have sort of started switching Portis, not because he's some ace switch defender, but more so because, you know, unlike Lopez, Portis isn't actually good in a drop. Right. So it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to use him that way. They're trying him out on some switches. He's been surprisingly fine. And that's just been huge because, like, he is bringing a lot of value to them on the glass. Like, the Bucks have annihilated the Suns on the offensive glass in this series. And in general, like, you mentioned how well the Suns have shot the ball. Like, their effective field goal percentage in the series is 40 percentage points higher than the Bucks. Uh, They're shooting 50, 41, 86 as a team in the finals. And yet they still find themselves trailing in the series and getting outscored because the Bucks are getting like way more shot attempts or just shooting possessions every game um, because of that, you know, the deficit, on the boards like they're absolutely beating the suns up on the glass and they're also committing way fewer turnovers i was going to say the turnover battle has been big too and again part of that drew holiday's 
point of attack defense on not all of it, obviously, but a big part of that. Like Chris Paul averaging almost four turnovers a game in this series is partly because he has he's having a lot of difficulty just getting into his and the team's offense because Drew's picking him up almost full court. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he committed five turnovers in that entire Denver series, which I get, you know, it was only four games, but still, like we're five games into this series and he's committed 18. So that's obviously been huge for the Bucs, you know, not only slowing down the Suns offense, but like getting themselves out in transition, which is obviously great for the Bucs because they're a great transition team, but also because they're not the best in the half court. But regarding their half court offense, I mean, what do you think about, and again, I so I've been paying like closer attention recently than I was earlier in the series, but especially in that game five, there was like a lot of blitzes on Chris Middleton in the pick and roll. It just seems to me like the Suns are kind of getting the worst of both worlds with those blitzes because they're not forcing turnovers. And kudos to Middleton, who does sometimes struggle with ball pressure um, for consistently making good decisions when those blitzes come. But like that's greasing the wheels, I think, for the Bucks in the half court, where at times they can be very, very creaky in those situations. It's like putting the Suns in rotation. And I thought, especially in game five, the Bucks did a really good job of shorting the pick and roll when the Suns blitzed, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, it's just like instead of uh, the ball handler passing it to the roll man, they'll make a pass either to uh, the wing if it's a middle pick and roll or they'll pass it to the top if it's a side pick and roll. And then that guy will make the pass essentially to the roll man. Um, Mo, Mo DeKeel, who has like a great, twitter account he calls that a seven pass because it basically makes the shape of a seven the way that the ball travels um the bucks did that like four or five different times i thought in that game five and i think they scored every single time um and i i just like i, I know middleton's made like a ton of shots in the series and he's punished the drop with his pull-up shooting but like I, I don't know if the blitzes are a good idea what do you think yeah i mean they're probably not like, but a big part of that is just like, I don't know, like if Middleton, if Middleton turned the ball over with the frequency that he usually does or showed the level of discomfort with pressure that he usually does, like we're probably sitting here having a different conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, like, yeah, I agree with you. It's probably not a good idea. It hasn't been a good, it hasn't looked like a good idea so far. And so on one hand, I want to say like the, the initial thought of it, I don't think was a bad idea. I think the one criticism should be, and it's what we would criticize Bud for or have in the past, is like, okay, once you realize maybe it's not getting the desired outcome you want from it, it's not causing Chris Middleton the um, discomfort that you hoped it would, or it's not maybe discombobulating the Bucks' offense the way you thought it would and making them have to go to option B, C, D at a certain point and maybe realize it's not, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. continuing to go to it just because your initial thought was that it would have some desired effect. Like that's not necessarily good coaching or persistence isn't always great <laughs> no i think you're right in that like from a process perspective trying out the blitzes is not the worst idea right. in the world maybe i'm wrong maybe that will like they'll stick with it in game six and that will be the reason that the suns win you know <laughs> um yeah. i just think given the way that it's worked out so far uh it obviously if we're basing it just on results, which I just like went on this whole mid episode soliloquy about how we shouldn't just like base everything on results and we should focus more on process and be nuanced about this. Um, but yeah, the results have been poor, I think for the Suns when they've been uh, going to that coverage so far, I just, for me, it just seems like 
the Bucks can really get bogged down and, and get stagnant and struggle in the half court. And that just seems like an easy out for them and a way for them to get the ball humming around and, and put the Suns in rotation when on their own, I don't think, you know, as good as Middleton's been since game two, basically in this series, neither he nor Holiday on their own are the kind of players I think who should scare a defense enough to like bend it and get it in rotation without, um, without that being kind of like the strategy that the Suns are employing from the jump. And again, like, like I mentioned too, if the roles were reversed and it was the Bucks who were insisting on a coverage five games in despite it not working, we would be, or I know I would be, I'd be criticizing Bud, right? For the same old thing of, of, of refusing to adapt or adjust or change tactics mid-series or mid-game. And so, you know, when Monty and the Suns are doing it, I think they deserve fair criticism too. Yeah. Again, it because I know what you're saying. Like you went on the the rant about how we shouldn't base everything on results, but we are five games into a series here, it, a championship series, a final series. Like I think at a certain point, from a coaching perspective, from a game plan perspective, results should factor in here. From that lens, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about kind of the Bucks' offense against the Suns' defense. What about the other end of the floor? Because to me, it feels like you know, as much as you were talking about the Bucks not wanting to switch as much, uh, at least when it comes to like Drew playing CP in the pick and roll, like they're making more of an effort to have him fight over, but they are like switching most stuff one through four. And I feel like that has, you know, if you, if you kind of look at the multi-screen complex motion sets that the Suns typically run to such great effect, I feel like those have started to get stalled out a bit. And oftentimes they're defaulting to, okay, let's find Pat Connaughton and have Booker ISO against him. And I think, you know, like that's actually been fairly profitable, but mainly just because Booker's made a ton of difficult shots. Because I think Connaughton's done a pretty damn good job in those situations. And the shot that Booker has been hitting in those ISOs have been like primarily contested long two-pointers. So for that to be like a staple of the Suns' offensive diet, I don't necessarily think is a good thing, even if it seems like it's working when Booker hits a series of jumpers in Connaughton's face. Like, they're taking a ton of mid-range jumpers. They're not putting a ton of pressure on the rim. And, you know, on the back end of those switches, it, it felt like earlier in the series, maybe they were like making more of an effort to use Aiton on the back end of those switches. And it seems like as the series has gone on, they've hewed more and more toward trying to attack the front end. Uh, and whether that's like Giannis on a switch or Connaughton on a switch or Portis on a switch, it, it's like gone like away from trying to use Aiton's mismatch on the back end. And I, I wonder if maybe getting back to that a little bit can help solve the issue that they've had with the lack of interior scoring. Yeah. I mean, Aiton's usage has evaporated as this series has gone on and I'm not really sure why it's one thing. If attacking the front end of those switches was resulting in great offense, you know, process wise or results wise, but when it's often resulting in, Devin Booker having to, whether he makes it or not, having to settle for a very difficult shot or when it's resulting in Chris Paul like uncharacteristically looking a little out of sorts, mm. I don't really understand not 
involving Aiton more or trying to use his mismatch down low on the back end of those switches too, whether it's him dominating inside or, you know, that leading to a breakdown somewhere else for the Bucks that leads to a better shot or something. Uh, it, it doesn't really make sense to me why the Suns have gone away from that. I'm I'm assuming it's one of those things that it's not like a conscious thing. I don't think they're deciding going into it that they're not going to get Aiton involved or that they're not going to look for him on those switches. But for whatever reason, they're not doing it. And uh, it's been part of their undoing on the offensive end. I do think part of that is on him. It's been a recurring thing with Aiton basically until this postseason when I feel like he's been very assertive and aggressive and all of his best qualities have come to the fore. But like I, that's something we've talked about and kind of griped about with Aiton in the past is that he isn't always assertive in those situations. And I do think there's been a little bit of that where he's not aggressive enough with the slips or with the seals. Um, and he certainly, I don't think, has done enough damage against those mismatches on the offensive glass. Like, again, we're talking about like the Bucks beating up the Suns on the offensive glass. And given how frequently the Bucks are switching small guys onto Aiton, he should be doing the same thing to the Bucks at the other end of the floor, and he hasn't really been doing that. Um, but I also think, you know, the Suns perimeter players somewhat frequently are either ignoring him uh, when he has that mismatch on the block, or they're just waiting a beat too long to enter the ball to him. And that's giving the Bucks a chance to scram it out uh, and get a bigger guy into that matchup. So um, I'm definitely curious to see if they work more of that in. Uh, and it's just, I mean, ultimately, you know, their bread and butter is going to come from their guards. So maybe like, and it's not like Booker has been amazing, right? So it's not necessarily like you look at that and say, Oh, like we can't have Booker taking this many shots or isolating this much because he's been so successful. But Again, it's like the shots that he's taking are not necessarily like high value shots in the grand scheme of things. And in a predictive sense, it's like if that's the direction the Suns continue to go in game six, then that would make me feel better about the Bucks' chances, I think, than Phoenix's. I think it's interesting, too, that uh, on the other end, Chris Paul has been targeted the way he has the last couple of games. I mean, this is a guy that defensively at the like on the perimeter IQ wise is one of the best at the point guard position ever. And uh, the way that he has been picked apart defensively and like purposefully attacked on that end the last couple games, I think is pretty jarring to be honest. And, and I don't know what, like, I don't know what's maybe the, you know, the like leg issues hampering him, but I don't know. I don't think so because the injury that he apparently suffered in the conference finals, a hand injury, you know, the the injury he suffered earlier in the playoffs was a shoulder injury. I know he's double. Like, I know he's had, he's banged up right now. I'm not disputing that. But I don't think he's banged up in a way that should be, like, slowing him defense. You know what I mean? And so I do wonder, it's like, are, are we in real time here watching the beginning of the end of Chris Paul on the defensive end, at least? Because, other, like, I, I don't really have any other way to explain it. Why, A, the Bucks are so confident attacking him and why he has been so vulnerable to um, not just being attacked, but then playing right into Milwaukee's hands by being poor on that end. Well, I think the reason that they're attacking him is just like a lack of better options as far as defenders to attack. Like, where else do you go? You know, like, Giannis has had success going at basically everybody. But if you're, you know, Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton, it's like, okay, like I would rather not have to try and go one-on-one against Mikhail Bridges, probably would rather not do it against Jay Crowder, find the guy at least who you have a size mismatch on, 
And in Drew's case, a strength mismatch, even though like Chris Paul is super freaking strong, but like, I think Drew has a strength advantage there. And obviously Middleton can shoot over him. Like that's just the best option for them if they are going mismatch hunting um, or if they do want to ISO. And if the Suns are switching, that's what they're giving up. Then I feel like it makes sense for the Bucks to to look at that matchup and say, this is one where we feel like we can get something pretty good. Uh, so from that perspective, I get it. I, you know, like he, Chris Paul's what, 36 now? Like, I think he's still a good defender. I've said for a while, like his value comes from being a helper. Like he's still a tremendous team defender, but as a one-on-one defender, I feel like he's been slipping for a while now. And that's the thing that the Bucks are exploiting, right? Like if you want to take Chris Paul away as a help defender, make him defend the ball. And if the Suns are, are switching the pick and rolls involving CP and you can get him switched on to Middleton, like, or you can just have Drew kind of go at him one-on-one, then maybe that's a better option than kind of, you know, like otherwise I feel like the Suns want to stash him on like PJ Tucker. And if you're running an action where Tucker's not involved and he's just standing in the corner with, you know, then there's Chris Paul as a helper to kind of muck your shit up. And like, rather than doing that, like you kind of involve him in the central action. And I feel like that's almost limiting his effectiveness as a defender because it's not playing into his strengths. And I'll also credit to PJ for like when the Suns have stuck Chris Paul on him, he's been really aggressive about crashing the offensive glass, uh, which is like one of the very few ways that he can contribute offensively. Um, both him and Connaughton, I think crashing from the corners has been pretty big. Yeah. And as you mentioned, those those extra shots that they're getting on possessions or per possession are a big reason why, uh, you know, even game four, for example, like when I mentioned the many reasons you can say the Suns should have won that game, a big factor against them was that despite how much better they shot than the Bucks in that game, the Bucks just got a lot more shots because of offensive rebounding. Um, that has come from, you know, Tucker maybe being matched up on Paul or Connaughton crashing from the weak side and, and then the turnovers as well. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. I think uh, unless you have any other finals-related thoughts, I think we can just about get out of here. I did want to ask you, and I know the answer to this already because you already told me you don't have many thoughts on it. Do you have many any thoughts on Dame Lillard? I won't say requesting a trade yet, but saying all a player can say up to the edge of requesting a trade. Basically... Dame Lillard has requested a trade without officially requesting <laughs> saying a trade. all that he can say and also not saying all the things right. that you could not he, say to indicate that you're not super thrilled with your circumstances. Right. Um, he is most likely going to get moved this summer. And if not, there almost is no way he's on the Blazers by the end of this coming season, I would say. Despite the fact that he has four years and $196 million owed to him. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but then like you look around the league and it's... It's not easy to put together a Dame Lillard trade package that's going to make sense for both teams, right? Yeah. Um, so that is a potential roadblock to this happening. But I, I don't know, man. It's just... 
like I think it is surprising probably to some people just because Dame has been among the most outspoken superstars about loyalty and being loyal to like his franchise and the city that he plays in. He has said all the right things about loving Portland. And like, there's this quote in a Jason quick story, uh, Jason quick, a fantastic blazers beat writer from two odd years ago that I kind of always circle back to when it comes to not only Dame, but just superstars in general and why maybe they do what they do. But he was insistent in that story that he was never going to either, you know, demand a trade or demand that the Blazers make a trade. Um, And what he said was, I want to win a championship for this city, but I'm not willing to put somebody under the bus to do it. That means more to me than saying I want a championship. But now this guy has been traded to a bad situation and now his team don't like him as much and he might be out of the league in a year. I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to have that on me. And I thought that was really interesting. I'd never really heard anybody say that before. Like, I'm not going to demand a trade because I, I don't want it to impact the other players who are necessarily going to be involved in that trade, you know, and looking at it in a more altruistic sense. Like, this isn't just about me, but like, if I demand a trade, a bunch of other guys are going to have to get traded as well. And I don't want that on me, but right. I'm sure DeMar DeRozan would have appreciated if Kawhi Leonard saw things that way in <laughs> San Antonio. Go. There you go. But there are ripple effects to this. And I guess we don't know for sure whether Dame has requested a trade or will request a trade, but uh, you know everybody has their limits, clearly. And whether it's the sudden sort of dysfunction uh, in the front office, like the coaching situation, Terry Stotts getting fired, the, I don't know if it's fair to call it calamitous, but like obviously that press conference that Neil O'Shea and Chauncey Billups gave when he was introduced as the head coach and the clumsy way that they have dealt with the, those um, rape allegations um, made against Chauncey in 97, whether it was the hiring process or the investigation that they purportedly conducted into those incidents, which I think, uh, I can't remember who it was who did the reporting on this, but it was found to be very lacking, that investigation. Yeah. Um, and they were- And I believe- the victim's lawyer uh, right, has she, confirmed she wasn't that contacted. right. The Blazers never contacted them, and so. they were like cutting off inquiries into it during the introductory press conference. Like it was handled about as poorly as you can handle something like that. So I don't know. I think in like the Chris Haynes story that was written about this, he mentioned that that had like factored into Lillard's decision making, and it just like I think it's fair to say like the Blazers are in turmoil right now, and. Obviously, like, you know, Dame can talk his talk and say all all he wants to say about how he's loyal to Portland and he'll never demand a trade. But suddenly, like, there's this whole front office coaching mess and the team has just, you know, been bounced from the playoffs in the first round for the second year in a row. And, you know, all that loyalty stuff doesn't sound so good anymore. Like, it makes sense to me. And I don't, like... Not going to call him a hypocrite or or like throw his words back in his face. It's just a way of saying, I guess, that like you know everybody's loyal until they're not, like until it just yeah. like doesn't make sense for them to be loyal anymore, and that's fine. Like I think ultimately, I've said this many times, but like the the owners hold most of the power in the NBA, and and Dame Lillard as a superstar holds more power and more leverage than the vast majority of the NBA workforce. But at the same time, like the, the contract structure, like 
there being max salaries limits what superstar players can make, prevents them from making what they are actually worth, given how much they control outcomes and frankly drive revenues in the league. So in a way like they're subsidizing the league, like that that salary structure works to benefit the NBA's middle class, as it were. And so for superstars to kind of like tip the scales back in their favor by forcing their way to a destination that they want to go to, to me, seems like fair game. And so I have no issue if or when he does request a trade. Um, But I just think it's like important to keep that in mind where like, yeah, players are going to say what they're going to say. Like, obviously, they're going to talk about being loyal to their team. Like while they're on that team, that's what they should be doing. But I think it's foolish to think that it actually means anything at the end of the day. Exactly. And I think, you know, you you hit it on the head when you said we're not going to call him a hypocrite. I think, no, that's ridiculous. But I think, and it's not just Dame, I think it's whether it's, you know, players like Dame early in their careers, whether it's media sometimes, fans a lot of times, whoever, I think it's uh, ignorant or it's not ignorant is the wrong word. It's naive. That's what it is. It's naive for anyone who either plays in, follows, covers, roots for this league. This league, the NBA, and everything that goes on in it, and the drama, and the soap opera, and the entertainment, all of it, it to me is very naive for anyone who watches this league, religiously especially, to think or to believe that what a player says, you know, five, six, seven years into their career, or what they say about loyalty or staying in a like that it holds any water three to six months from now, let alone a year from now, let alone two years from now. You know, like too much happens in this league and it moves too quickly for you to be basing like what's going to happen on, oh, but this guy said this three months ago or no, 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 but look at the situation he's got now. He's not leaving. The, like, you know what I mean? It's like, no, man, trust me, things happen in this league that you cannot even fathom will happen in the next six months, right? So I, I just think like for me, it was, and I know a lot of people started talking about it when he had that, whatever it was, 55 points against Denver in the in the playoff game where he hit multiple buzzer beaters to tie it, and yet they still lost because his team let him down. I think that's when people really started talking about Dane probably wanting out. But if you just like use an analytical eye to look at the situation and it's like, okay, Dame is now an over 30 superstar who has played in the conference finals once, has never won a conference finals game, obviously he's never appeared in the finals. And then you look at the Blazers situation. Their second best player and their second biggest contract is CJ McCollum, who when next season starts, CJ McCollum will be a 30-year-old one-way shooting guard set to make $100 million over the next three years who has never made an all-star game. Their best young player is what? Anthony Simons? Is that fair to say? Uh, I mean, I'm not, even, I'm not a big Simons guy, so <laughs> like... And neither am I, but I'm saying is like if if you look at their... What is it? Nasir Little maybe? Like, I don't know, but yeah, either that, way, it's lacking. Right. But if that, if that's the conversation we're having, they don't have attractive young talent to other teams is what we're saying. Um, they don't have uh, great contracts, obviously outside of Dame because it's superstar value. They don't own any picks this year. And while they don't owe many like in the future, they also don't own any extra future first rounders. Essentially, it is very easy to look at this picture and say, this is a team that is not good enough to win right now with Dame in the picture. And that does not have anything close to avenues to improve to the level in which they could win a title realistically. So, you know, like even Dame's comments about how uh, he just wants them to act with more urgency. It's like, even Dame's a smart guy. I think Dame can look at the situation and he knows there is nothing that the Blazers can actually do 
to turn into a title contender in this current situation. There is nothing urgent they can do that would like, okay, we'll trade CJ McCollum again for Ben 30 year old. Right. But even then, like, I don't know, are the Sixers doing that? I don't think so, man. Uh, I, I think they'd have to think about it. Like, I don't, how, like, we, we talked about this, uh, you know, when we did that that Sixers-centric episode after they got bounced by the Hawks, but they're trying to trade Ben Simmons right now, by yes. all accounts, and they're doing so with him at the absolute nadir of his value. How much better than CJ McCollum can they do? No, I, I, I'm not saying that they can do better. I'm just still not convinced that they take that deal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm just not convinced given the contract he's on and given some of his limitations for as good as CJ is. I'm just not, I'm not convinced he can be the, you know, centerpiece of a deal that brings back enough for Portland that all of a sudden it's like, okay, well now this, this team can compete for a title next year. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like, if you can't do that, then yeah, Dame's probably not staying. So just so much of this, it's like, to me, it's just like read the writing on the wall. This situation is ripe for a guy, for a superstar who has not played in, you know, the finals or has not consistently been on a title contender to want out. And Dame saying he wants the Blazers to be more urgent is kind of BS because I think he knows there is nothing they can really do in this current situation. And, you know, at the risk of building a straw man here, I just think in a lot of the like fan discourse and just NBA discourse in general would be a lot healthier if people acknowledged that these players play for themselves and they play for their families. And I like, maybe you could say like they play for their teammates, but ultimately Dame Lillard or anybody else can, can talk all they want about like, I want to do it for Portland. I would never like be disloyal to the Blazers fans, but like that only goes as far as it's like beneficial to Damian Lillard in some way, shape or form. And maybe that can be like, I think it would be great for my legacy to be a blazer for life. Or it's important to me, like, I don't want to uproot my family. I want to stay in Portland. Or Portland can offer me the most money. Or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Or even the legacy thing, winning in Portland would mean more for my resume and legacy than winning in LA after getting traded. Absolutely. Branding opportunity. Like, whatever it happens to be. It's like priority number one is like, What's best for me? What's best for my family? And then like a distant, distant second, third, whatever it is, is like, you know, okay, like I've played in Portland for my entire career. I care about these fans and it would suck to let them down. Like, I just don't think that's actually top of mind for the vast majority of these players. And we should acknowledge that and we should be totally okay with that because that's how we all live our lives. And... So like, even like I'm, I've said the word so many times and it just like feels mealy mouth like to me and, and I should stop saying it. Like we should all sort of like stop saying it so much because I don't think loyalty has ever really been the right word. Like when a, when a player plays his entire career for a team or professes a desire to do so, I don't think it's about loyalty so much as it's about like, this is what feels best for me. This is what's most comfortable for me. This is what I feel like is going to be best for my career, for my family. Like these are individual choices. And so a player's quote unquote loyalty only goes so far as I feel like their situation benefits them and their family. And once it doesn't anymore, they're right to want to move on. 
obviously like that applies to Lillard, it applies to any other future superstars who will find themselves in similar situations. We got to just be cool with that. You know, like yeah. that's, that's the way that these players operate and it's the way that they should operate. And that's just how it is. Yeah. And when they don't do it, we should call them loyal losers until they author one of the greatest final performances in NBA history, at which point we acknowledge they are not loyal losers. There you go. Unless you've got anything else to add, I think we'll get out of here. And uh, before we do, I do have a fan shout out for the week. I've got a couple in the chamber for the next couple of weeks too, but this week's fan shout out goes to Michele Piperni from Calgary said he expects me to pronounce that name perfectly as an Italian. And my friend, that was never in doubt. Also, Michaela is my nonu's name, my grandfather's name as well. So mispronouncing Michaela Piperni was never in doubt. But Michaela says he's been listening since uh, Kawhi became a Raptor, which happened three years to the day yesterday, actually. That was actually also only a few months after we launched this pod. So mm-hmm. Michaela is almost a day oneer. Uh, he did admit that he stopped listening for a couple months during this trash Raptors season, which to be honest, I can understand because uh, not only as a homegrown Raptors fan, but as a sports fan in general, I do understand uh, when you're not actually working in in that league. Like it's sometimes when your team is shitting the bed, you almost can't bear to listen to league talk for a little bit. So I nothing against Michaela for stopping listening to us for a few months, but he's back now. He said he had to come back for the quote unquote clown talk and unmatched analysis. And he ended his note to me by saying huge congrats to Wolfond on the new baby. So Yeah, and I actually just want to say, like, I, I had a bunch of people, I don't have all the names in front of me now, but a bunch of people did reach out on Twitter to congratulate me. And I just want to say I really, really appreciate it. Um, it was very nice to sort of feel supported. And um, to the entire Pound the Rock community, uh, it really means a lot. So thank you, guys. All right. For Joe Wolfond and his now bigger family, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.